This morning we're going to be talking about this idea of motion improving emotion. But before we get into that, I want to tell you a quick uh, story about something that's been taking place in my household over the past few days. Just the other day, Andrea was using the sink. She was standing at the sink doing something. I think she was just trying to spray something off. I think it was uh, something she had just cooked with. And something very strange happened to our faucet. Now, we just purchased this particular faucet just a few years ago. I don't know how long I expected it to last in my mind, but it's not that old. It's maybe about, maybe about five years old, somewhere in that vicinity. And what happened when she was using the sprayer part of it, so it has one of those sprayer handles that kind of pulls out, and uh, she was using the sprayer handle and just spraying things off. The internal parts of the sprayer came loose and shot into the sink And as I looked at it, I realized this can't be repaired. It's done now. (laughs) It's ready to be retired. So now if you use our sink, you have to be very careful that you don't turn it on too quickly, because if you turn it on too quickly, the way it's set up, you'll get a lot of splashback. Your shirt will be all wet. And um, I guess basically what that means is it looks like I'll be replacing that sprayer very soon. I would say any time within the next 6 to 18 months, I will be replacing that sprayer. Um, But in all honesty, it doesn't surprise us when a household appliance breaks. All of us have probably experienced that in one respect or another. You know, we use something for a little while and then it breaks. We use something else for a little while and then it breaks. It doesn't always seem like things are built with the mindset that it's going to last for a, a very long time. And we, we expect that it might break, and when it breaks, we do our best to try and fix whatever is broken. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. But appliances are not the only thing that break. In fact, when you look at our lives, when you look at humanity in general, people break too. In fact, there's more than one way to be broken as a human being. People experience spiritual brokenness, Relational brokenness, emotional brokenness, financial brokenness, physical brokenness, all of these things, these are all ways in which we tend to experience brokenness. But one of the things that I love about our Lord Jesus Christ is that Christ delights to heal broken people. He finds us in the condition we were in, and then He offers to do something about it. And we find a great example, one of my favorite examples of that, in John chapter 5, where Jesus demonstrates His desire to heal the broken. So before we take a look at this portion of Scripture, let me have a word of prayer together with us. Let's pray. Lord, thank You so much for the privilege to be able to look at Your Word this morning. We're grateful for the privilege that You give to us to be able to read it, to be able to study it, to be able to examine it, to be able to apply it to our day-to-day lives Lord, we're thankful for it, and we pray that you prepare our minds and prepare our hearts now to understand it, and we pray this all in Jesus' name, amen. So again, this morning we're in John chapter 5, and we're ultimately going to start at verse 1 and work our way down to verse 9, but let me begin by reading just the first three verses of John chapter 5, and you'll see in this portion of Scripture that there is no shortage of broken people in this world. Look at what it tells us in John chapter 5, verse 1. It says this, After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there in Jerusalem by the sheep gate, a pool, or excuse me, it says, Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate, a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. 
In these lay a multitude of individuals, blind, lame, and paralyzed. Now, during uh, the era of Christ's earthly ministry, there were three annual feasts that were celebrated by the Jewish people that required the Jewish men in particular to travel to Jerusalem. And those three feasts were Passover, Pentecost, and the feasts of, or the Feast of Booths, sometimes called the Feast of Tabernacles. And people have tried to guess which feast was being referenced in this particular passage, but no one's particularly sure. When you read up on some of the, the writing on this passage, people, some people guess that it might be one of those feasts, and other people guess it might be one of the others, but the truth is there's really no consensus. We're not certain which of those feasts this may have been. And it actually may be that the Apostle John, as he was writing this down, he may have mentioned it just simply to indicate why Jesus was in Jerusalem at the time. He also may have mentioned it just to demonstrate the fact that Jesus was very careful to observe the Old Covenant, to observe the law during the course of His earthly ministry. But we're told in this portion of Scripture that in Jerusalem, by the Sheep Gate, that there was a pool that was called Bethesda. And we're also told that multitudes of people would lay near that pool, and they were hoping to be miraculously healed. Now, when you're reading through the text of the English Standard Version, and that's the version that I prefer to preach from, one of the things that you might notice in looking at this chapter, if you were looking at it closely, you'd probably see that it doesn't include a verse 4. It goes right from verse 3 to verse 5, and yet some other translations include a verse 4. The ESV chose not to include verse 4 in this because it's believed to actually be a scribal clarification about what was going on, not, a, not an inspired verse that was in the original text, so they don't include it. But in that scribal note, I'll just tell you what it says, we're told that the people believed that on occasion an angel would come and would stir the waters of that pool at Bethesda. And that the first person that got in the water after it was stirred would be miraculously healed of whatever disease they had or whatever affliction they had. So that was the belief at the time. And I think, particularly when you realize that these people were in a a state of desperation, I think we could all understand why uh, those with these physical infirmities might be tempted to believe this particular superstition and attempt to gather around this pool. And, you know, when you look at their situation, you would say, all right, well, what other options did they have in that particular context? I'm certain that that many of them had already tried all of the medical options that were available during that era, but obviously those medical options didn't work for them, and even some of the diseases and infirmities that they had, there was no medical option for it. So their only hope really was the miraculous, and this seemed like a reasonable plan B to them. This seemed like their best option at the time. And I'm sure that they probably thought, okay, at best, I might be healed. And at worst, at least I could spend some time congregating with those who might be sympathetic to my condition because they're also dealing with their problems. So that's what was drawing the crowd, the thought that they might be miraculously healed, but they could also at least spend some time with others who probably understood their situation better than most. Now, I don't know what you think about crowds under a normal situation or under normal circumstances. I, sometimes I like crowds, but it just depends, right? Uh, I'm, I'm not always a huge fan of them, particularly when it's a pressing crowd, meaning, you know, being like when I think of a pressing crowd, I'm picturing a context where I'm, I'm being jammed close together with people that I don't know and 
uh, forced to feel a bit claustrophobic and sweaty and unable to freely move. Uh, That's not my ideal kind of experience, although now that it really isn't an option, maybe in, in some respects I should probably warm up to that idea. But the Scripture tells us that there was a multitude of hurting people gathered around this pool. A multitude. So how many is a multitude? You know, when you read a portion of Scripture like this, do you ever ask yourself questions like that? I look at this and I think to myself, how many is a multitude? What does that mean when it says there's a multitude of people gathered around this? And I think that basically what what the Apostle John was trying to indicate as he was penning this Scripture, as he was writing this event down and transcribing this for us, I think he was trying to indicate that basically you're talking about a number of people gathered around this pool that couldn't be easily counted. It was that many, a group of people that was so vast and so numerous that it couldn't be easily counted. And as optimistic as we might be, I think we have to admit, even when you look at this portion of Scripture and even when you look at our our present-day context, there is no shortage of hurting people in this world. This multitude around this pool demonstrates that, but we see it right now in our present era, in our time. There is no shortage of hurting people in this world. In every corner of the globe, there are multitudes of lives and spirits and bodies that are broken. For various reasons, people are hurting. But the biggest reason hurt remains in the inner person. The biggest reason someone continues to go on year after year, day after day, month after month, hurting in the inner person is because we don't yet understand what can make us well, or better yet said, who can make us well. We don't understand who can make us well. But I love what Jesus tells us in Luke chapter 5. And in Luke chapter 5, verses 31 and 32, this is what the Scripture records. It says, And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. This world may be filled with broken people, but Jesus is the great physician, and he offers ultimate healing on every level. And still the irony is that There's many people who persist in their brokenness because not everyone actually wants to be healed. There are many people in this world who have chosen to just persist in brokenness because they don't actually want to be healed. And that's demonstrated for us when you look at verses 5 through 7. It shows us not everyone wants to be healed. Look at verse 5, and I'll read down to verse 7. It says this in John 5. It says, One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am going, another steps down before me. So among the multitudes of people that that were lying down near this pool, the Scripture tells us that one particular man was singled out by Jesus. And we're told that this man had been an invalid for 38 years. For 38 years he had been an invalid, and for a long time he had been lying right there near the pool. 
So for nearly four decades, this man had been unable to walk, and he was dependent on the care that others offered to him. He was even dependent on the kindness of others to to help him get into the pool when the water was stirred. But at this point, it doesn't appear that there was a friend or a family member who had remained right there with him to, to help him if that happened. And I actually wonder if at this point in this man's life, if maybe those who used to care for him had either passed away or maybe they just got tired of caring for him and they abandoned him. But either way, he was alone. In this particular context, he was alone. It actually makes me wonder if that's part of why Jesus singled this man out. You know, you have this man who's alone and he feels hopeless. And Christ looks at him and he singles him out and he says, do you want to be made well? Do you want to, do you want to be healed? You know, Jesus looks at him and he says these things. And as he's asking him this question, I, I, th- I think it's a question that on the surface, it might actually sound like a silly question to ask, because he looks at this man, this man who for almost four decades has been unable to walk, and Jesus says to him, do you want to be healed? And I imagine that, that in some respects, we could look at this question and we could say, all right, is that a reasonable question to ask, or does it seem so obvious that it might seem ridiculous to actually pose that question to a man who had been an invalid for 38 years. How did that strike you as we first read that together? Does it seem like a reasonable thing to ask or something that seems almost ridiculous to ask this man? But I'll be honest with you, I I think it's a great question uh, because apart from Christ, there's a huge void in our souls that we're trying to fill. And people try and fill that void with all sorts of things, hoping that something will eventually work. But during the course of my adult life, one of the things that stood out to me as being one of the most tragic truths of human observance is the fact that not everyone with an infirmity wants to be healed. There are plenty of people who have an infirmity that do not want to be healed from it. In fact, many people begin to adopt their infirmity as their identity. They start to adopt it as their identity, what they think about themselves. And without their infirmity, they, they even start to, to they, they begin to struggle to grasp who they actually are their sense of self, their, their means of receiving attention, their solution to a try to attempt to fill the void in their soul, it seems to all come right back to their infirmity. And as strange as it may seem, some people nurture and love their infirmities for this very reason. So what are, the, what are some of the infirmities that at times we might be tempted to adopt as some form of our identity? You know, what tragedies have we been the victim of that we've started to treat like that tragedy is a badge of honor? Or, you know, if someone asks you, who are you? You know, if they want to know who you are, right, who are you? Do you begin by describing yourself as a victim of some kind or maybe a survivor of some sort of tragedy or infirmity? After 38 years, you know, when you look at this particular man in this portion of Scripture, after 38 years, do you suppose that there was a risk that the man at this pool uh, that Jesus was speaking to in this particular context, that he might struggle with this as well? I think he might have started adopting his infirmity as his identity. You know, was it, was it entirely possible that maybe even this man didn't want to get well? I think so. And sadly, I have to admit that I've spoken to and I've counseled many people through the years that I've had the privilege to be a pastor who demonstrated to me that, at least for now, they didn't actually want to get well. They wanted to persist 
in whatever infirmity they had become used to. And I bring that up because I think that that's something worth asking ourselves about. So let me ask that question. I wish I could hear your voices even as I'm asking this question. Uh, I can't. You know, maybe if you yell loud, I'll be able to hear it. I don't know. But how about us? Do we want to get well? Do you want to get well? Do you want to be healed? I guess I could ask it that way too. And, and by the way, you may or may not have a physical infirmity, or you may or may not have an addiction that you're struggling with, but what does your walk with Christ look like? Is there some aspect of that walk that is unwell? Uh, what do your relationships with others look like? Is there some aspect of your relationships that are, that are unwell or broken? And what does the message that you've been preaching to your heart sound like? Is there something that's not right about it? Is there something unwell? Is there something broken about it? The kind of healing that Jesus Christ offers is much more than just a skin-deep kind of healing. He heals the entire person, and He can fill the nagging void that might be present in your soul. And here Jesus is speaking to this man, and He's offering him not just physical healing, but you could see when you observe what Jesus is up to in the Gospels, as He's going through His earthly ministry, He's offering healing on the deepest level. And when Christ heals us, He initiates a relationship of trust. We're called to trust Him in all ways. We're called to trust Him to forgive our sin. We're called to trust Him to remain with us in all circumstances. We're called to trust Him to empower us to live in obedience to Him. But we all need a little encouragement to get moving in the right direction. And the man that Jesus was speaking to in this passage, he needed a little encouragement to start taking a step of faith as well. And so Jesus looks at this man and he tells him to get up and walk. Look at what he says in verses 8 and 9 of this passage. He teaches the man, he tells the man to get up and walk. It says in verse 8, Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now, I'm about to ask a question that I recognize is something that's pretty much universally true of us, so I think I already know your answer even as I ask this. But I'll, I'll throw it out there anyway because I think it's become a very relevant question related to all the things that are going on right now. Certainly the conversations that I'm having with many people, they seem to come back to this type of question. And so the question is this, have you ever experienced a season where you felt depressed or where you felt anxious and you really couldn't put your finger on the cause of it, but you started to realize that it was true. Or maybe you could put your finger on the cause of it, but just the same, it was something that was persisting. I can tell you that multiple times in my life, I've certainly experienced that, a season of anxiety, a season of worry. And in these moments, I think it's good to ask the Lord to reveal some things to us. I think one of the things that He's taught me is that when I'm going through a season of, of abnormal worry or abnormal anxiety, that one of the first things I really need to do, if I'm honest, is I need to ask the Lord to reveal to me if there's some area of unrepented sin in my life. I'd like to pretend to you that I never sin. And it's been, you know, like six, seven years since I've last sinned, you know, maybe, maybe eight or nine, something like that. But way, way, way in the past, long time ago, I think I committed a few sins here or there. The truth is, um, I struggle with sin, you struggle with sin, we all struggle with sin on a daily basis. And one of the things that the Lord's been teaching me over time 
is that I need to be honest about that with him. Otherwise, I'm not going to get past those things. They're just going to become dominant features of my life, and I definitely don't want that to be the case. So when I'm going through a season of worry, when I'm going through a season of anxiety, I've started to become a bit more honest about that with the Lord and just ask him, Lord, is there an area of unrepented sin in my life that I've been welcoming in and treating like it's not even a sin that I need to confess to you and that I need to repent of before you? And if he shows us something, if he shows me something, or if he shows you something, give it over to him, and then walk in the freedom that Christ purchased for you when he shed his blood on the cross. I think it's also wise to to seek to understand that if you can't identify an area maybe where you're nurturing secret sins, that there's also a spiritual battle that's taking place, and I don't think we should discount that. Meaning, I'm convinced that one of Satan's favorite ways to attack the followers of Christ is through our emotions. Satan loves to attack us through our emotions. And in seasons like that, I've personally asked, I've personally asked the Lord to be my shield from the arrows of Satan, the arrows of depression, the arrows of anxiety. And I've watched the Lord answer those prayers. When those arrows are coming, and it's become clear to me that there's a spiritual battle taking place around me, I'm starting to learn not to discount that as a reality. And the Lord answers those prayers. The Lord offers himself as a shield for those arrows of Satan, those arrows of anxiety, those arrows of of worry. And when you look at this particular portion of Scripture that I just read for us a few moments ago, Jesus demonstrates a very hopeful remedy for those who have been broken with discouragement and, and for those that have been broken with despair. And Jesus looks at this man who hasn't walked in decades. So it's been decades. It's almost 40 years. It's 38 years this man hasn't walked. And he looks at this man and he tells him this. Very simply, he says, get up, take up your bed, and walk. And I think it's fascinating when you look at that in this portion of Scripture. He says, get up, take up your bed, and walk. And the Scripture also tells us that in that moment, the man was healed and he obeyed Christ's command. So you have Christ healing the man, you have Christ making this man able to obey, and the man obeys. He stands up, he picks up that gross and smelly mat. I mean, think about this thing. This, you know, right now everybody's paranoid about germs, everybody's paranoid about viruses and sicknesses. I'm sure that mat was disgusting. And uh, the man picks up this gross and smelly mat, and he walks. He'd watched others walk for years, and he wished that he could do that too, and now he could. And I think it's interesting because later in this chapter, in uh, John chapter 5, verse 14, Jesus actually cautions this man, and he says, see, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. He encourages this man to walk in freedom, to not return to sin, to not rebel against his Savior who had just healed and rescued him. And in this act and in many others, Jesus, what he was doing was he was fulfilling what the Scriptures had prophesied about the coming Messiah. Jesus was demonstrating that he was indeed the Messiah who had come to rescue and heal and redeem humanity. I love what Isaiah prophesied in Isaiah chapter 35, verses 5 and 6. This is what it says related to the coming Messiah. This is what Jesus was fulfilling here. And it says in in Isaiah 35, it says, And when he comes... He will open the eyes of the blind and unplug the ears of the deaf. 
The lame will leap like a deer, and those who cannot speak will sing for joy. Springs will gush forth in the wilderness, and streams will water the wasteland. Isn't that a beautiful portion of Scripture? To, you know, I, I could just imagine living in, the, in that season of time while people were, were waiting for Christ, the Messiah, to come the first time, and then reading what Isaiah had said there and thinking about, wow, it's going to be wonderful when the Messiah comes. And then Christ came and he fulfills these things. And now here we are in a particular context where we have the privilege to look forward to Christ coming yet again and uh, ultimately bringing us to be with him for all eternity. He has good things in store for us. And I love the picture of who Jesus is and what he does that we're given as we look throughout the scriptures. Now, I don't know ultimately who to credit with this particular saying, although I first heard it, and you've heard me say this before, I'm sure. I first heard it uh, while listening to a podcast with Michael Hyatt. And uh, Michael Hyatt uh, made mention of something uh, that has really, it's stuck in my mind, but he said, motion improves emotion. Motion improves emotion. And I think that's true. And I think that that's a, a statement that has a spiritual application that's demonstrated here in John chapter 5, that motion improves emotion. When Jesus helped this man, he didn't heal him with the expectation that this man would continue lying on the ground on that dirty, sweaty, smelly mat. Christ's expectation for and his command to this man was that he get up and walk. You're healed now. Get up and walk. Don't just continue to lay there in your mess. Get up and walk. And is it too much of a stretch when we look at a portion of Scripture like this, and when we think about what Jesus was conveying and communicating here, is it too much of a stretch for us to to make that kind of application to our lives as well? When Jesus singled you out, now think about this on a very personal, on a personal level, in a very personal way. When Jesus singled you out, when He identified your deepest need, when He healed your broken soul, Maybe I should put it that way. Did he call you to remain in the mess that he had just pulled you out of? Or did he empower you to get in motion? Did he call you to remain in the filth, in the mess, in the gross disgustingness of what he had just lifted you out of? Or did he say, okay, I've lifted you out of this, now get in motion? Meaning, you've been discouraged... If you've been depressed, if you've been anxious, is it possible that you've been going through a season where your knowledge of Jesus hasn't been looking very much like a daily walk with Jesus? Could it be that in a very similar way, Jesus is looking at you and looking at me and saying, hey, listen, it's not time for you to just sit on that smelly mat and lay on the ground and and do nothing. It's time for you to get up, take up your bed, and walk. The broken find healing in Jesus. It's one of my favorite aspects about looking at this particular portion of Scripture from John chapter 5. The broken truly find healing in Jesus. Yes, there are multitudes of people in this world, and, and no, they don't all want to be healed. But those who are willing to trust Him, even when he says things that sound very impossible, 
Those who are willing to trust Christ are also invited to walk with Him and to experience His transformative power in their day-to-day lives. His transformative presence, His transformative power to help us get up, take up our mat, and walk. Let me say this as we finish up this morning. Don't choose to wallow in whatever's been getting you down. Wherever you've been feeling broken, don't choose to wallow in it. That's not helpful for you. It's not helpful for those that surround you. Motion improves emotion. Motion improves emotion. And what I believe this scripture is demonstrating for us is this. We need to walk with Christ in all contexts, in every season, in every circumstance. We need to walk with Christ We need to give Him the opportunity to transform our minds and the opportunity to heal our hearts. And that's the offer that He makes to us right now. Let's pray. Lord, thank You so much for the privilege to be able to look at Your Word together this morning. We're grateful for what You illustrate to us as we look at this passage of Scripture. Lord, we're grateful for what You did in the life of the man that was laying at that pool for so long and unable to walk for so long, but we're also grateful for the fact that you offer us a level of healing that is far deeper than what we would expect. It's far deeper than sometimes we're even looking for. The kind of healing that you offer us is far more than just physical healing, although I do believe that you accomplish that even in miraculous ways. But Lord, you offer us healing for the deepest and sorest parts of our soul the most damaged aspects of us. Lord, you take us, who your word describes as having been dead in our sin and trespasses. So there's no more brokenness than deadness, right? And Lord, that's what you, that's what you did for us. You looked at us, we were dead, we were lost. And you found us and you made us alive. And we're grateful, Lord, that you have chosen to do that. So, Lord, we pray that by your grace that we would walk with you daily, that we would be people who embrace the fact that you make us well, that we would take up our mat, that we'd just get up and walk with you in every context, that we would obey you, that we would listen to your prodding, that when you speak to us by that still small voice of your Holy Spirit, that we would follow with the the unction that you're giving us that we would recognize that the power that we have is power that you're supplying so that, we, so that we can walk with you in all contexts. But Lord, we're grateful that you bring healing to us. And, and Lord, again, we pray that we would not give in to Satan's attacks on our emotions or the attack that comes just from our own proclivity to drift towards sinful tendencies. Lord, we don't want to give in to those things. Rather, we want to walk with you So by your grace, we pray that you'd help us to live in faithful obedience as we completely trust you, recognizing your presence with us, and utilizing the power that you supply to us. Thank you, Lord, for getting us in motion. Thank you for giving us the charge to to get up and walk. And we pray that as we listen, that we would walk with you in every context that you place us in. We thank you, Lord, for your love and for your goodness and for your healing. And we commit ourselves to you today and pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.